Take your copy of God's Word this morning. Find Psalm 95. If you didn't bring one with you, there should be one wherever you're seated. Psalm 95 is our passage. There's some notes in the bulletin. You can follow along there with some of the things that we're going to talk about. If you've ever read through the book of Psalms, you know that many of the Psalms have notes above verse 1. And in many of your Bibles, you'll see sort of a, a heading. The editors have put that heading in there, and then below the heading or the title, there will be sort of some notes. And sometimes those notes are about who wrote the psalm. Sometimes those notes are about when it was written or why it was written or who was supposed to be singing it or the music that was supposed to be part of singing that particular psalm. Psalm 95 has none of that. So there's no clues to who wrote it. There's no clues to why they wrote it other than the psalm itself. And when you look at the psalm itself, you'll find that it divides neatly into two parts. Part one, And part two, Psalm 95 contains a call to worship, that's part one, and then it contains a warning about rebellion, that is part two. And so I just want you to see how this sort of plays out. If you look at the text, Psalm 95, verse one, I want you to see the call to worship. It begins with these words, O come, and then you can circle, let us, right? That's an invitation From the psalmist to whoever is reading it or listening to it, there's an invitation. Let us sing. Later in verse 1, let us make a joyful noise. Verse 2, let us come into his presence. Verse 2, let us make a joyful noise. Then if you jump down to verse 6, you see it again. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. That's the invitation. Part 1, an invitation to worship the Lord. Part two, a warning about rebellion. And you see that warning begins in Psalm 95 at the end of verse seven where it says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day of Massah in the wilderness. Now some of you may read that and say, I don't know what Meribah is and I don't know anything about Massah. And so we just want to talk about that quickly. Some scholars think the the back end of this psalm, Psalm 95, was originally composed for the feast of of tabernacles. And some of you who have been here the last couple of weeks are rolling your eyes, if not outwardly, internally, because you're like, I thought we were done talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been talking about this feast for weeks and weeks as we've gone through John 7 and 8, and I'm going to squeeze it in one more time before we pick up next week with John 9. Some scholars look at Psalm 95 and they say the content, right? There's no note, there's no author, there's no setting, but the content of the psalm sounds like what the people were doing when they gathered together at the Feast of Tabernacles. For one thing, they were gathering together to worship. They gathered together as the people of God in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And that certainly fits with the first half of the psalm. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us enter into his presence. Come, there's this invitation to worship. But at the Feast of Tabernacles, not only are they worshiping, they're also remembering that God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, they lived in tents. And so at this feast, they're all living in tents. And they're remembering the Exodus. They're remembering God's mighty deeds in saving his people. And they're remembering when God brought us out, the Hebrew people, we were stubborn people. We had hard hearts. 
and we put the Lord to the test. And some of those things happened at Meribah and at Massah, if you go back and study it. So the front end of this psalm is the call to worship. The back end is the warning. Don't be like those people who had hard hearts and who put the Lord to the test. In all of it, we're really talking about worship. And before I give you the big idea of Psalm 95, I just want to give you a quote from a guy named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer uh, lived what most of us would think of as a long time ago. And he wrote a lot of different books, and he has a lot of sort of quotable lines. But when I think about worship, I think about A.W. Tozer, and I think about things like this that he said. Today, many millions of people, he says, there are today many millions of people who hold, quote-unquote, right opinions, probably more than ever before in the history of the church. Yet I wonder if there was ever a time when true spiritual worship was at a lower ebb. He goes on to say this. To great sections of the church, the art of worship has been lost entirely, and in its place has come that strange and foreign thing called, quote, the program. I just want to explain to you what Tozer's talking about. He's looking around at churches in his day and time, and he says, look, they're filled with people who know the right answers. Like they can pass the systematic theology 101 exam, give it to them, they know the Sunday school answers, they can say all the right things. And he looks around at churches and he says, all these churches are really busy. Like they're all doing stuff. They have activities going on. They have programs going on. The, the, the calendar is full of stuff. But the one thing that's missing, at least in Tozer's estimation, is the one thing that can't be missing. It's the one thing that has to be at the center of the people of God, and that one thing is worship. I just want you to realize that what he warned us about 50, 60, 70 years ago is still an issue today. You can look around at churches, and you can see people who will head nod and affirm all the right things. You look around and you see churches who are very busy with activity. There's people coming. There's stuff happening. There's, there's lots of posts on social media talking about all the things that the church is doing. But when you really boil it down and look at a church, the question is, is this a church committed to worship above all, yes or no? And at Emmanuel, that's who we want to be. It's why in our vision statement, the very first thing we say is, at Emmanuel, we believe God is with us, not just for you, first, not for the city of Odessa first, not even for the world and the ends of, ends of the earth first. God is with us for his glory, that we might worship him and we might give glory to him. Worship has to be primary to who the people of God are. What we do on a Sunday morning cannot be driven by entertainment. It cannot be fueled by performance. It cannot be sort of jazzed up and put all the bells and whistles on it to make it look pretty and, and it just makes you have a certain feeling. The core of what we do as the people of God when we gather together must be worship. Psalm 95 drills that point home and the big idea is really, really simple. The people of God worship with joyful thanksgiving. And what Psalm 95 is telling us is this is who the people of God are. It's not just something that we do, it's who we are. We must be as God's people. We must be folks who gather together to worship the Lord and to do it with joyful 
thanksgiving. That's the big idea. We're going to read Psalm 95, and then we're going to pray and ask God to pour out his blessing on his word. So you follow along, Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation, and I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we gather together as your people. Our desire is to worship you. Lord, our our desire this morning is to worship you joyfully with hearts that are filled with thanksgiving. And Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear truth from this psalm. Father, we We ask that you would give us hearts to receive what the Scripture is saying to us. And, Father, that we would hear the Scripture this morning as you speaking to us. This is your word. We pray that we would receive it as such. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very simple this morning. I just want us to listen to Psalm 95, and I want us to think about what would it look like if we were people who worshiped the Lord with joyful thanksgiving. That's the first two verses. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make joyful noises to him with songs of praise. If that's who we were, if that's what we were to do as God's people, what would it look like? What would that sort of worship be characterized by? And I just want you to see a few simple ideas. The first is this. The people of God give thanks because of who God is Period. Full stop right there. Tyler prayed this just a minute ago after we sang about God's holiness. We don't just gather together to sing songs because all the good stuff God has done for us. First and foremost, above all else, we gather together to worship God because he is God. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. That and that alone is enough to motivate us to worship to cause us to gather together as his people with joyful thanksgiving and to sing praises to him. He is a great God and a great king above all other gods. All the other gods do not compare to our God. He's the only true God and he's worthy of our worship. Forget all the things that he's done. Forget all the things that he is doing and all the things he's promised to do. Forget his mighty deeds. Forget his faithfulness through all the years simply because he's God. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of joyful thanksgiving just because he 
is. That's enough to motivate us to worship. When you read the Bible, there are a number of stories where God's people had to learn that. Everything that God had blessed them with gets stripped away. Think of Job. Everything that God had been faithful to provide for them, think of Habakkuk. They lose all of it. And in the end, they have to come to grips with the fact that God is worthy of worship, not just because he does nice things for me, not just because he, he provides things that I want or that I like. He's worthy of my worship just because he's God. So that's the first idea. At Thanksgiving, we need to remember this because at Thanksgiving, I think our natural tendency is to give thanks for things. And we should give thanks for things. That's right and that's good. We shouldn't take them for granted. But we should never let things and gifts become more important than the giver of those gifts. And Psalm 95 is calling us to worship God just because of who he is. Second, the people of God give thanks because of what God has created. What he's created. Psalm 95, four to six. In his hand are the depths of the earth. In his hand. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We live in a remarkable place. The rock that we live on is really mind-boggling. And I think sometimes you and I have a hard time remembering that because of technology. Technology and the things we can do in travel and the things we can do over the internet sort of make the world feel smaller. I can show you pictures this morning of our church members on the other side of the world and what they did just moments ago. I mean, that's a remarkable thing, a picture I pulled up just this morning off of social media. Uh, We get breaking news alerts from the other side of the globe, and we just tend to forget sometimes just how big the world is. But don't forget what Psalm 95 says. It says, the Lord, with his hands, made the depths of the earth and the mountains belong to him, and the sea is his also, and all of the land is his. All of it he just made. He made it, and he holds it. And he's our maker. He's the creator. Just some quick numbers and pictures on some of the points that the psalmist brings up. He talks about the depths, the depths of the earth. The deepest depth of the earth is the Mariana Trench, It goes down from sea level 36,037 feet. That's a long way down. It is a long way to the bottom of this trench. It just goes down deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. It's the deepest depth on the earth. The highest height on the earth, Mount Everest, you could take Mount Everest, flip it upside down, and fit it easily inside the Mariana Trench. Easily, 7,000 feet to spare. Mount Everest, above sea level, 29,029 feet. What about the oceans? He says, the Lord holds the oceans, the seas in his hand. Do you remember the first time you went to the ocean? I mean, people can tell you how big it is, and I can put a picture up there that doesn't have any end to it. You just see until you can't see anymore. But there's nothing like standing on a beach for the first time, looking out at the ocean and just seeing how big it is. 
and how massive it is. And you just sort of get a sinking feeling in your stomach the first time you experience that. And you say, that is really, really, really big. It just goes on and on and on. What about the land? Sometimes we forget how big land is. Brooke and I lived in Kentucky for a number of years, and we used to drive home. Sometimes we would fly, but sometimes we would drive from Louisville all the way down to Odessa. And I've circled a lovely place on the map called Arkansas. The, the red line represents about 20 hours. And here's how it would go for Brooke and I. We didn't have a lot of money, so we'd say, we, we can't afford to fly, we're just going to drive. So we would drive this thing, and then the drive is so miserable, the next time we would visit, we would say, you can't make that drive, you got to fly. And then you fly, and flying's miserable too, and it costs a lot of money, and so we'd kind of flip back and forth. But every time we drove it, something strange happened. This is a 20-hour drive, but that little blue circle is like three days to get across. And that's not an Arkansas joke. I don't, I'm not making fun of Arkansas. I just mean that was the point of the trip, for all the big cities and all the crowded places and all the, the, the parts of the country you can go with lots of people, I just remember that stretch of the trip thinking, there's no one here. It's just open and we just drive and we drive and we drive and I keep watching the mileage sign and we're not getting any closer. It's just moving further away. The world is a really big place. And the psalmist says this, in his hand are the depths of the earth. He just holds it in his hand. And the heights of the mountains, they're his. He owns that and he holds on to that. The sea is his, that big, huge thing that you go visit and you look, that's his. You know why it's his? Because he made it. And all the land that exists, even that massive stretch across Arkansas, it's his. He made that too. And when you think about all that God has made and the bigness of it, and look, we haven't even gotten out of our own atmosphere to talk about our solar system and our galaxy and the universe. We're just in our own little atmosphere thinking about how big it is. The psalmist says this, humility is his response. Let us worship and bow down. We don't need to just come before him brashfully. We need to bow down. We need to kneel before Yahweh, the Lord, our maker. So we're going to worship God for who he is. We're going to worship him for what he's created. Number three, we're going to worship him and give thanks because of how he provides. He's a provider. Look at verse 7, Psalm 95, 7. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The idea is that we're the flock and he's the shepherd. And as the shepherd, he takes care of us. And as I start to talk about God, Yahweh, the Lord, is a shepherd, I imagine that for mo many of you, or most of you, your mind goes to Psalm 23.1. And you think about this verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I imagine that a lot of you are like me and that at some point in your life you didn't appreciate the importance of the semicolon in that verse. And you sort of read that, or maybe you didn't even memorize it with punctuation, you just memorized it verbally and you thought, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't want I don't want him. He's my shepherd and I don't want him. But the semicolon's really important. And so, there's a few other translations that help bring this out. And I'll just put some of them up on the screen, what Psalm 23.1 is saying. The CSB says, the Lord is my shepherd. Pause. There's nothing that I lack. I don't lack anything. The NIV, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack 
nothing. The new living, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I'm not missing anything. I'm not wanting for anything. I'm not lacking anything. He has provided all that I need. The Bible says that's true. The Lord is your shepherd and he provides what you need. That's true on a material, financial level. And his provision in your life and my life and your neighbor's life may not all be equal, but it's there. What you have is because God has provided it for you. And what's true of us as individuals is true of us as a church family. You know, our church is 80 years old. Right after I moved here, we celebrated the 75th anniversary. Now we're 80 years old. Church was started in 39 on the south side. 80 years of history for this church family. You can look at it a lot of different ways, but you've got to look at it as a story of God's faithfulness. Here we are, 80 years later, after being started on the other side of town, we have a great facility. There's things about this building I don't like, but I have pastor friends that would kill for a building like this. This is a great building. We don't owe anybody a penny. We don't owe anybody anything. We have money in the bank. We pay the bills. Our missions offering is through the roof every year. You guys are amazing in your generosity and giving to missions. It's absolutely phenomenal. We met our 2019 budget in October. That doesn't mean you get to quit giving for the rest of the year. That just means, like, I don't get any credit for that. None. Zero. You get no credit for that. That's God's provision for us. And at Thanksgiving, how important just to stop and say, the Lord is our shepherd. There's not anything we want. What do we lack? We have everything that we need. God has provided for us. So maybe your mind, you hear that we're the sheep and he's the shepherd. You think of Psalm 23. I also want you to think about John 10, 11. Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 23, 1. It's the fulfillment of, of verse seven that says, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is Jesus saying, I'm the shepherd. And yes, I'm gonna provide for you materially and financially. But I'm also gonna provide for you spiritually. We've been talking about this a lot lately as we've worked through John seven and eight. I just wanna remind you who we are apart from God's grace. Just from that little window of scripture, John seven and eight. John 7 and 8 says that you and I are dead spiritually as sinners, spiritually dead. That little window of Scripture says that we are slaves to sin. Right? We commit sin, we practice sin, it makes us slaves. We can't free ourselves, we can't bring ourselves back to life. And the big conclusion of those chapters is that we are not naturally God's people simply by virtue of the fact that we were born on this rock. Jesus looks at the people who of all the people on the planet thought they were God's people and he says, you're not God's people. You don't know him. You're slaves to sin. You're dead in sin. You're separated from God. You have a problem with the Father that you can't fix. And yet Jesus looked at those same people and he said, the Father has sent me to fix it. That's why I'm here. To seek and to save what's lost. To give life to what's dead. To set free what's been enslaved. I've come to fix the problem you would never be able to fix on your own. Jesus came to live for us. He came to die for us. He rose three days after being buried, and he promised that he's going to come back for us. He will return and gather his people together. 
And in the meantime, not only has he lived our life and died our death and promised to come back for us, he sent his spirit because we're dead and the spirit comes and gives us life. We have hearts that don't work right and the spirit gives us hearts that love the Lord. Jesus sends the spirit to do those things. Jesus sends his spirit to live in us, to dwell in us, to seal us. Jesus sends the spirit to inspire this book so that we have his word, we have the scriptures, and it's true. Everything in this book is breathed out by God and it's useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. Why? So that you and I could be equipped for every good work. We have all that we need spiritually. And it's all because Jesus is the good shepherd who came and he laid down his life for his people. We're going to celebrate that this morning in the Lord's Supper. But there's one more thing I want you to see. One last reason to give thanks to worship. The people of God give thanks because of how God speaks. How he speaks. This is the end of verse 7. He is our God. We're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And then don't miss this verse. It's so important. This little phrase. Today if you hear his voice. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did after the Exodus. Don't put God to the test like they did after the Exodus. This is looking all the way back to when Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. And not only did God save those people from slavery, but he met with them. He met with them at Mount Sinai and he spoke to them. Moses looked back on this moment when God saved his people and spoke to his people. He looked back on it 40 years later and he said this. He's speaking to the, the children of those who came out of slavery in Egypt. And this is what Moses said. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood in between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to you. You heard his voice. What did you do? You hardened your heart. You put him to the test. And the end result of all of that heart hardening and putting God to the test is Psalm 95, 11, The Lord swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Those people will not walk into the promised land. They will not enjoy the salvation that I've provided. In fact, it's even worse than that. In verse 10, he says, I loathed that generation. I hated them because they went astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. And the psalmist remembers that episode, that tragic episode, and he says, today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not put God to the test. Respond with joyful thanksgiving in worship. Listen, this morning you are in the position of being people who have heard the Lord speak. Not like the Hebrews thousands of years ago with a fire and a, a big booming voice. Not because I've stood up and given you a, a talk. You've heard the Lord speak as we've read his word this morning, Psalm 95. We read it together. That's the Lord speaking to you. And the psalmist says to you, just like he says to these people, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Do not do it. Respond the way God's people ought to respond. Acknowledge that he is a great God 
and he is a great king above all other gods. Acknowledge that he's the creator, that with his hands he formed everything that exists and he holds it all right there in the palm of his hand. He's in complete control of all that he made. Acknowledge him as the shepherd who provides everything that you need. Materially, yes. Financially, yes. But most importantly, spiritually. He did that. He's provided for you in sending his son. The Bible says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The Bible says that Jesus shed his blood to purchase us, to ransom us, to buy us back from death and bondage and slavery. And the call this morning for you and the call this morning for me as we celebrate the Lord's Supper is to respond exactly as the psalmist is calling us to respond. We're going to stop at the end of our service. We're going to acknowledge God as the only true God. We're going to acknowledge him as the creator of all that exists. We're going to acknowledge him as the one who provides everything that we need as his people. We're going to thank him that he sent Jesus. And we're going to thank him that he has spoken to us. We don't have to wonder and guess about how to know him, how to have a relationship with him. He's told us plainly. He's spoken to us in his word. And this morning, we do not want to be those who harden our hearts and put the Lord to the test. So this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you've obeyed his command to be baptized, we want to invite you to celebrate with us. We're inviting you to be part of this joyful, worshipful time of thanksgiving. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we just ask that as the elements pass by, the bread and the juice, you take a few moments and you think about the great privilege of hearing the voice of the Lord and what it would look like in your life for you not to harden your heart and not to put him to the test as you leave this place this morning. So I'm going to ask you to bow. We're going to pray together.